welcome to the book a week podcast jointly hosted by the sept university library and the center for research on architecture and urbanism welcome to this episode of book a week podcast i am arul paul i'm an architect and associate professor at the nitty institute of architecture mangalore My research lies in the intersection between the built environment, pure theory, and media studies. I use history and theory as a lens to critically examine pedagogy as it evolves in response to new advances and challenges, and to contribute to academia, research, writing, and practice. Today, I'm talking to Rahela Kurakiwala. a senior resident fellow at the vidhi center for legal policy where she leads the work for vidhi maharashtra vidhi is an independent think tank doing legal research to make better laws and improve governance for the public good rahela completed her mphil and phd from the jawaharlal nehru university in delhi her llm from nyu school of law and her llb from glc in mumbai In the past she has worked with the World Bank for a project in Kabul the Ministry of External Affairs on an international maritime dispute the law offices of Federal and Company in Mumbai and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Max Planck Institute in Germany she recently published her first book which we are going to delve into today titled From the Colonial to the Contemporary Images Iconography Memories and Performances of Law in India's High Courts which is an ethnographic study of the first three colonial high courts of india rahela has several publications to her credit including contributions to the indian law review and the asian journal of law and society welcome rahela i'd like to start this conversation by asking you what persuaded you to write about iconography and visual culture hi arun so uh, when as a law student and you know i write about this right at the end uh, the start of my book uh, as a law student when i walked into the court uh, the structure the architecture there was always something that kind of put in a feeling of awe and maybe at some level a feeling of fear and i always wondered uh, what it was that feeling you know of walking into a court building and how it would make someone feel alien or not and then as i progressed and uh, to become a lawyer and then when i went to gnu to do my phd i was in a multidisciplinary department it was the center for law and governance so in my class you know we were a mix of sociologists political scientists developmental studies lawyers and um, especially also my phd supervisor is a sociologist you know by training and that really helped me look at the court through a lens of as an anthropologist so i started looking at the court more than just as like how lawyers look at the court as a you know a piece of like legislations and you know case laws and arguments and things like that and moved you know to for me looking at the aesthetics the theater of the court and and i started seeing that there was a correlation between the way uh, the court was structured and the way one could access justice so that kind of piqued my interest and then basically i i would say you know i from a lawyer i kind of became a legal anthropologist so it's a mix of law and sociology and looking at the law how the law lives in court more than looking at the law in as a letter of the law well i think that um, you know the connections that your book makes between the law and the image that the law projects of itself i think 
you know, those connections are really fascinating. I'm also curious, was it a conscious effort on your part to retain, you know, the former names of these cities? In your book, you say Calcutta, you say Bombay, you say Madras. Was it conscious? Uh, definitely. So as uh, the three cities changed their names, starting uh, with Bombay, when Bombay changed to Mumbai, the Bombay High Court never changed its name. It always remained the Bombay High Court. And uh, there was a lot of protests and PILs and a lot of, uh, you know, demand for the Bombay High Court to change its name with the city name to Mumbai High Court. So to adjust for both, it has become the Bombay High Court with judicature at Mumbai. So that is how they adapted kind of for both. Uh, there was also one underlying argument throughout that the letter statement under which these high courts have, uh, you know, uh, been established, they name that as the Bombay High Court, Madras High Court, Calcutta High Court. So you'd have to amend those letter statements for uh, you to, uh, you know, change the name of the court. And, uh, so calling them Bombay, Madras, Calcutta was very much uh, keeping in sync with actually what the courts are called. They actually till date call the Calcutta High Court, Madras High Court, Bombay High Court. And if you see in the book, I actually talk about this very specifically because the naming of the court is also something that is very integral to the way the courts are perceived, the way they are, uh, the way they are dealt with, and the way uh, you kind of deal with uh, access to justice in these courts. So you'll see uh, in the Madras High Court, they're actually very much in favor of changing the name of the court to Tamil Nadu High Court, because first, of course, the city's name has changed to Chennai. And second, they're like, it's not the court, it's not the court only for Madras or Chennai, it's the court for the entire state of Tamil Nadu. And then you come to Calcutta, and there they are, of course, opposed. They don't even want to change. They said even the city name should change back from Kolkata to Calcutta. So it's no question of changing the name of the High Court. And in Bombay High Court, it's like a bit uh, lukewarm, you know, there's not much. Uh, on either way. And these three reactions to the changing of the name of the court, it very much is in sync with the reactions of the people when I went to these courts. These three courts are also very similar in their reaction and relationship with colonialism and the colonialism in the court, you know, so that follows through. Recently, there was a bill uh, tabled in uh, parliament to change the name of these three courts. And then the letter was sent to the three courts, you know, to do the change and like, like I said, Madras was willing, Calcutta totally opposed, and Bombay kind of was lukewarm. Uh, so retaining the name is actually that is the name of the court. So there's no like no conscious or decision or anything. It is actually the name of the court. And throughout, uh, I think I make maybe if I make references to the city, I started by saying I give the disclaimer, you know, that it's now called uh, Mumbai, and but I call it Bombay so that you can continue to understand that these are the three courts in the three cities because all the three courts in all the three cities the names have changed. So moral conscious, it's more of like actually factual because that is actually the name of the So in your book, the court, as you say, is not just a place where justice is done. It should also be seen as a place where justice is done. Do you think that the architecture of these high courts actually reflect this symbolic idea of justice? Most definitely. I mean, that's the premise of my book. So I think I'd have to agree with you on that. But definitely, yes, I feel that. Uh, so as you understand, like uh, colonizers, they would to stamp their identity. They would build large structures of uh, administrative and governance importance 
and uh, that would be like their stamp of arrival that we have arrived and we have this control over you. So they would build courts of law, they would build parliament buildings and things like that. So they would build these huge, larger than life structures, which were always, you know, we had to look up to them and they were always standing in the important parts uh, right in the center. So there is definitely a link and a connection to that. Also, they use architectural styles that were alien to the native place. And so these combination of these things uh, remind you that you are colonized and there's somebody else that is uh, looking over you. One is the actual architectural structure. And then, of course, within the courts of law also, I mean, India had its own existing judicial system before the British came. And so you're also replacing that. So you're kind of replacing both. And uh, the larger the structure, the more overpowering, the more you'll be in fear on awe of it, and you'll always look up to it. And that has continued. Uh, the, the, uh, we still use the colonial buildings, right? Till date. So that has continued because post-independence, you're using the same building. And again, they are these large structures and you're entering them. And so when I spoke to people who used to, who have interacted with the court for the first time, that, uh, you know, uh, people, those people uh, always had a fear or a, like a, a feeling of awe or fear, which you shouldn't technically have if you're going to the court of law, because the court of law is actually for the people. It's built primarily for the people. So I definitely think there is a link. I'm then wondering if this visual language that these legal complexes, uh, you know, that they employ, is the influence, in your opinion, restricted to the environment that it's fostering within the legal community, say, you know, the judges and the lawyers? In fact, I think it affects the common man and the litigant, the common person and the litigant more than it does influence uh, probably the uh, judiciary or the lawyers or the legal system because they take actually pride in that maintaining that theater of the court because they get power out of it. So actually it is the litigant who is actually facing the uh, consequences of the theater of the court at the maximum. Because when you as a lay person enter the court, you are first very confused. You can't understand where to go, what to do. Then you have this huge building and then you have this huge portrait. Everything is looking down on you. You enter a courtroom, there's a judge sitting elevated, there's a, you know, a court clerk, uh, I mean, a shiristadar behind the judge. Everything is like this entire, and they call it, you know, the temple of justice. So it's kind of this entire thing uh, being set up, then you have to bow, everybody stands up, people bow. And then, in fact, one of the judges I spoke to said this to me very categorically, saying that we actually... When you write in the you know the last page of your request to court, it says we pray to this honorable court. It's a prayer. It's called a prayer. He's saying, actually, in a court of law, you it's like you pray and you ask for something, and the judge has the power to give it or not give it to you. Whereas if you go to a, some prayer place like a temple or something, uh, you could go there and ask for something, but you don't know yet if you can get it or not. But the judge has even like more power because at that moment you're praying for something and you can get it or not get it. So, you know, there is definitely that sense. And uh, when I used to sit, part of my ethnographic work, I used to sit in the last row where litigants sit, you know, or common people, whoever has to come to court. And the kind of questions they would ask me, because I would, uh, if I was dressed as a lawyer, then they would ask me certain questions. And the questions are always connected to fear or, you know, like kind of some scare, like, oh, is this going to be contempt? Is this allowed? Like I had people asking me, can I drink water? Uh, can I uh, sit like this? Can I can I do this? Can I you know so do I mean someone to worry and fear that can I drink water in court? Where does that come from, right? So 
So it's that entire aura, that theater of the court that's created, that instills this kind of awe and fear. And that is part of the process, how the court generates its, uh, what, what would you say, its legitimacy, is what I argue. Like it uses all of this. So one, one judge that I spoke to said to me very clearly that if I sat in informal clothes at the same level as you and passed the exact same order that I passed, it would not have the same legitimacy that it has with the entire theater of the court with me sitting elevated and you know bowing. And he's saying, even if my pencil falls, I have to get somebody else to pick it up because if I go to pick it up, it kind of lowers my dignity. So all these um, three court complexes or these these courts, the institutions were brought into existence, you say, at the same time, but the buildings that house them were built over decades. And you mentioned that each of these institutions has, in some ways, its own distinct identity. You, I think you use the word ocular theme in the book. Uh, could you elaborate a little more about this? So the, uh, at the time when they were, uh, 1862 is when they were officially designated first the high colonial high courts of India. But the buildings, like I mentioned, and since that's important to our current conversation, they were built at different times. So at the time, Calcutta was the capital of uh, British India. So the Calcutta High Court was the first amongst equals, essentially, and that was where first the construction started. Uh, so that was completed in 1872, uh, the building. Uh, each of these colonial cities had different architecture, uh, different uh, engineers, like from the different British engineers uh, doing the work. So, for example, the person in Calcutta was assigned, uh, Walter Granville was assigned to do four of the structures, in, in the four important structures in Calcutta. So that would have been the Calcutta High Court, the Senate building, the town hall, and I think it was the, like, the GPO, I'm not sure, it was four, four buildings. And he chose the style, he made all four in different architectural styles. For the Calcutta High Court building, he picked the florid Gothic style, 13th century florid Gothic style. Now you you come to Bombay, where they had made this entire plan for that entire stretch of Bombay and totally different set of engineers and architects, right? So you have this Royal Engineers Fuller. Uh, it's The theory is that he built it uh, on the design of a castle on the Rhine River, but that's not confirmed. But it's Neo-Gothic. But Neo-Gothic was the style that they had picked for Bombay at that time. So you will have the VT station, the Bombay University building. It's all in a line, actually. And everything is in the same line and everything is in the same architectural style. So everything is neo-Gothic. And of course, as architects, you know that you always use material that's locally available because otherwise it's too expensive to construct. So you have all these buildings being built in Bombay of basalt, Malad, uh, from the Malad quarry, the Sivri quarry, so everything locally uh, available. And then when you come to Madras, which was the last, uh, so Bombay was completed in 1878. And Madras was completed in 1892. So uh, the Madras High Court, again, that that particular red brick stone work that's used, uh, is everything in Madras is using that. So the Madras High Court, then you have the university building, so that entire stretch, the railway station, everything has the same style and uh, the same material. And the Madras High Court is built in what they call uh, Indo-Sarsenic, which is a mix of... Uh, British and Indian styles, and they use the Rajput style. So you'll see the three arches. You'll have Gothic, you'll have Islamic architecture, and then you have domes on the top. So it's a mix, a very beautiful court, actually. 
uh, I know you've you've already spoken about this, but uh, how important is the history and the memory that is associated with these structures to the actual functioning of these complexes and to the kind of legal structures that they upload? Because uh, in your book, you say that, you know, the law maintains an image of itself in order to exert control over the populace. And uh, in the case of the British, you talk about these ideas of domination and subjugation. So I'm, I, I, I then wonder how much do these colonial structures that house these institutions still contribute to that image? If you see, to, uh, to argue that, uh, okay, this architectural structure is directly influencing the kind and quality of judgments that are being passed in these courts, I don't think you can make that kind of a uh, direct correlation or you can prove such kind of a correlation. However, what can be definitely said is that your experience of the court, the way you are able to access justice, the way you are able to access the court or experience the court or even feel how you feel while being in the court or whether, like, whether you see that justice is being done or not, irrespective of what is actually happening, whether you as a lay person coming from outside feel or see, that is definitely influenced by the way these buildings are structured. And it's been years now. The buildings are more than 150 years old. But, uh, and they are one of the very few buildings left that are still being used for the purpose that they were built. Uh, so they are actually heritage structures and they are still actively being used. And now you'll see across these three courts, they've had to modernize the courts to equip them to changing times. So you will have, for example, in the Calcutta High Court, they uh, it's a rectangle built in a rectangle. In the center of it, they have constructed up to two floors height on air conditioning unit, a, 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 a air conditioning plant. So it is in the center of the court and it's completely changed the aesthetics of the court. But now the courts have to be air conditioned because uh, heat has increased or, or whatever the reasons are. So that air, adding that air conditioning unit has changed the entire aesthetic of the court. So you have that modernization, but and in fact, you have that modernization with ignoring the heritage because if you did take care of the heritage of the structure, you wouldn't have constructed it in that particular way. So you have in Madras cycle also, they have installed the uh, uh, air conditioning units, but they have a very active heritage committee in the Madras High Court. And so they've done it in a way that, you know, it's least obtrusive to the structure. And uh, so you, you'll find that, I mean, so you'll see modernization building upon the heritage structure. So for example, none of these courts were built with good acoustics. You can't hear people. These courts were not built keeping in mind being able to hear each other. Uh, so that is a problem. And even today, you can't hear each other. There are mics, not everybody uses them. So any which way, if I am looking at the judge, uh, if I'm, I'm the law, arguing lawyer, I'm looking at the judge, anyway, the voice doesn't go back. And if the litigant is usually sitting behind, so that person cannot hear anything. They use this term, it's called auditory autism, where basically it's, the structure is created such that you are not supposed to hear you are placed in such a position that you're not actually supposed to hear or be part of the process. So that is all, you know, contributing factors. So it definitely it uh, has a, a link, a definite link. All of it plays a part and it continues to play a part till today because you are still today following colonial traditions and practices in these courts. Uh, they might be underlying, they might be, they're not written, they're not written laws to follow these things. 
some of them are just customary that you are just following in these court but there is no maybe meaning or semblance to them for example wearing of the black gown i asked people why do you want to wear the black gown or why is it necessary everybody said no it's very necessary it makes us separate from them it's our identity it's required but the question is why are you wearing it what's the relevance what's the significance that you have not bothered to investigate or find out you are just doing it because the tradition is being followed and wearing of that black gown is something that does intimidate a lay person like you know you'll say kale coat wale they'll call them you know like they'll be like the doctor's white coat and the advocate black gown and you do have that thing and even advocates even lawyers they take pride in wearing that they do believe that they are superior by wearing that black gown so there is definitely something to it and even when i asked people that why can't you get rid of the black gown across the board the answer was no so why would that answer be no what is it that is making you hold on uh, to that so there's definitely some link and some connection that all these traditions customary practices play in maintaining so for example in the bombay high court they have a custom where uh, lawyers charge for the arguing counsel they charge in gms gms are gold mohar no one uses that currency anymore you can write anyway one gold mohar is equal to some amount of rupees i think it's 15 rupees and so anyway you have to do the calculation so in the end you're getting paid in rupees but your bill says whatever 10 gold mohars and then then somebody else has to make that calculation so what's the point right like and sometimes clients will receive those bills and they'll be like what is this is grams like sometimes people will think it's grams because it's written as gms and so they'll be like grams like what is this and you're just confusing people and you're just doing it because you think that when you can uh, maintain some kind of you know uh, like an awe of the system or something that you know this like this hidden idea you know like something that you don't know about and something secretive you know like the something that's very unique to just this uh, system and generally the court is a secretive place right so so many things are not allowed you you photography is banned everything is banned so people don't have an idea of what the court is like and that adds to your fear and adds to your confusion because you have no idea what the court is like and nobody is giving you that information and you're always like fear of contempt is always there so there's this entire you know aura created around the court and this kind of you have all these practices that keep people even further away and more disconnected from what it actually is I'd love to hear from you then about some ideas on how these complexes should evolve into the future so what can be done I would think that a lot of the theater of the court can be toned down and the focus should be more on actual access to justice lowering delays in justice actually accessing the courts and things that are actually affecting building courts which have functional toilets building a court that has a crash for women i mean uh, babies as women having witness protection rooms things that actually affect the person instead of focusing that you're not wearing your gown straight and you're, you're not in the black and white dress code or i have to sit elevated i have to bow i feel like you make a new court which has a good sound system everybody should be able to hear it should be more of an inclusive format so the, the judge should not be so far away from the common person the common person should have maximum access to the judge so you could be sitting at the same level you could be sitting at a table at the like a, not in a hierarchy and also a court building should be built in the structure that's familiar to that region so for example if you're building it in a tribal village in maharashtra it should have that architectural style it shouldn't be some neo gothic style of architecture in the middle of a gone tribal village in maharashtra so that should be it the person should feel like they are continuing and coming from their town village city into one more part of their life it it, it feels like something that they are familiar with it should it should breed familiarity this entire notion of 
creating something that is secretive and distinctive that is something i think that if you let go of you can you know uh, make the court more hospitable uh, or more welcoming rather and basic facilities like in all of this when i was clerking in the bombay high court there was no functional toilet for women and that is a problem so instead of having statue of justice on top of the building i am maintaining that or rather you build a functional toilet right i feel like the court needs to make its space conducive for people to come there and people travel from across the state or across the country to be in the court and then you kind of your court itself keeps you out of it so those things and then by making itself more open by that i mean if you have live streaming if you have like see the courts are all public spaces so the you know the argument i mean anybody can go to court and listen but if you have live streaming you have photography you have uh, sketches you have live reporting if those things will help people become more familiar right now people think that the court is like what bollywood depicts it or popular culture depicts it to be and then you come to court and you're in for a shock because obviously the court is nothing like what the movies depict it to be and so you you know that that kind of reality of the court will be more present and so when you do come to the court you're more prepared for what to expect of course language but the problem of language is not so easy to solve so it's a bit more complicated so i don't really know what the solution for that could be but i think in structuring a court i think definitely there is much much that can be done and i don't think it's so complicated to do it very straightforward if you fix your priorities into being if you build the court from the perspective of a litigant versus building the court in from the perspective of a judge that is the main change so if you see even the new court buildings that are being built if you see the new rajasthan high court building that has just been constructed it's a modern building it's huge it has provisions for everything lawyers chambers parking toilets uh, you know uh, video conferencing proper courtrooms with electricity functioning wifi everything because it's a newly 2019 just before uh, the pandemic it, it opened but the court is built like with the consultation of the judges so the way the court the judges cars enter right to the center of the court and they have to take an elevator and reach but for everybody else who's using the court the court is on one side the canteen like if you want to have a cup of tea it is on the completely opposite side and you would have to probably walk 20 minutes to reach from one to one if you have an active matter ongoing and the chambers are somewhere else and it's it's so huge and it's so inconvenient so basically you have everything but the court is inconvenient for the people who need to use it the most the judges don't need to because their car comes and drops them and they go in the air conditioned elevator and go up so that's what i'm saying so even today if you build the court from the perspective of the person who uses it the most then that's where immediately you will be able to build a court that's more accessible have you always had an interest in the built environment and has working on this research sort of further kindled this interest i think maybe what i'm asking is can we expect to read more from you about the physicality of the practice of law i'm not sure which came first but i know for sure that ever since i started looking at the bombay high court that was the first court i looked at in this way i wherever i go wherever in india or across the world or anywhere wherever i go i first thing i go and see the court building and it's like uh, like my anthropological study every time you know so i think that's a very important part of my being and in fact every time i go back to these courts i always look at them from this lens you know i never i always look at the court like that and i think that now is part of my being uh so i one more book i'm not sure this one took a lot from me seven years it's like i write about it in my book right i had gone to seychelles and uh, the court over there it's built like a small like a uh, little shack on the beach 
and it's like fully you know they have those wooden open doors nothing is locked it's like a open cottage and everyone inside the cottage is wearing shorts and like singlets and you know spaghetti straps and it's such a reflection of the space as like as though you're on the beach and you're just like kind of going into the cot and like um, enjoying it and so i feel like you know seeing the cots and understanding their environment is so critical to understanding the space and the influence that a city or a space has on your systems of justice and so like in lebanon the court it, it's fully barricaded it has you know piles of those uh, stacks you know outside and heavy uh, military barricading and protection you can't take photographs you can't do anything and the statue of justice there is a male you uh, know in, in a military uniform with a military hat and a gun so you know so you see the seashells thing with this open kind of culture and things like that and then you have this lebanon court so it's very much connected and very much linked and it reflects on us as people our city our country our politics it all reflects so i think it's a very important part and i hope i can still continue writing on this movie Uh, we hope so too i we we look forward to you know a kind of demystification of the court and for the court to be a reflection of you know the society around it thank you so much most welcome it's pleasure talking to you and i'm really happy that architects are taking interest in this intersection of law and architecture please tune in to next week's podcast where we'll be discussing another book a week Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast apps.